Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Wednesday. July 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. NASA has released photos from the James Webb Space Telescope from its first six months of observation, and the incredible images show a range of deep space features, including a nebula around a dying star, water vapor around an exoplanet, an area where new stars are born, and a huge image of five galaxies where one of them is tearing a path through the cluster. Herbita Saha, deputy editor at Popular Science, joins us for our first look at what the James Webb Space Telescope can do. Next, a new report from the CDC is showing that the pandemic fueled a surge in superbug infections and deaths. Overall, there was a 15% increase, mostly due to sicker patients, lack of staff and safety equipment, and doctors over-prescribing antibiotics. Lena Sun, health reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, as many people continue to look for new jobs that provide that work-life balance they want, remember to look at the fine print. Those remote jobs you may have your eye on may not be as remote as you think. Some jobs listed as remote still require new hires to come into the office part-time or even live nearby to attend occasional in-person meetings. Lindsay Ellis, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to watch out for so you don't waste your time. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We see uh, five of them. This is a, a closer um, a galaxy uh, in the foreground, and these four are uh, at a distance of about uh, 300 uh, million light years from us, and are locked in a close interaction, a sort of cosmic dance driven by the uh, gravitational force. Joining us now is Perbita Saha, deputy editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Perbita. Yeah, thank you. What an exciting day to uh, chat about space. Definitely. Yeah. So we're getting some exciting news out of NASA and some first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, this thing is one of the uh, is probably is the most powerful telescope we have out there in space right now. We're getting images from the first six months of observation. And uh, one of the interesting things, one of the things that makes this so special is its use of infrared light to capture some of these visuals that we're seeing. They're able to see as far back as 13 billion years ago, you know, we're just talking about light years and how all that works. We're getting some just incredible images on all of this. We're looking at um, newly formed stars. We're looking at water vapor around uh, in an atmosphere around an exoplanet. Uh, we're seeing a, a constellation of other galaxies all uh, grouped together. So just some really exciting stuff. So Parbita, tell us a little bit about the James Webb Space Telescope first, and then we'll talk about these images that we saw. 
Yeah, so the James Webb Space Telescope has been in space for six months now. It launched back in December, and that was all live-streamed and very exciting as well. And over the course of the past few months, it's just been getting situated. So it's somewhere between Earth and the sun now. It's quite, quite far. And adjusting its many instruments and mirrors so that it could take the crystal clear shots that we are seeing today. It's been a long process. And NASA has been teasing these images for a few weeks now. So the hype was high. And I would say that the images really did live up to the hype. Tell me about the images that they did release. There was a few images that they got when, as I mentioned, just a, a couple of different things. One of them was the Carina Nebula. So this is where we're seeing some uh, new stars that were born. This is where the infrared capabilities really came in handy on this one. It's hard to image for a telescope in space or even on the ground here on Earth. It's often hard to image a lot of star activity because you have clouds of gas and dust surrounding these hot zones of stars. So one thing that's special about the James Webb Space Telescope's infrared camera is it can sort of peer through these clouds of dust, which is why we get this really stunning a crystal clear view of this very distant nebula. And I really like this image because it reminds me of the Pillars of Creation, which is a very famous Hubble telescope image that looks kind of similar. Uh, another one that we saw is the Southern Ring Nebula. So these are two stars that are orbiting each other. They're surrounded by gas. One of these stars seems to be nearing the end of its life. Astronomers are always interested in looking at star deaths because sort of nihilistically, it gives us a view of what might happen when our own sun dies. I believe the stars in this nebula are much larger than our own sun. So this sort of collapse is a lot more dramatic than we would see in our own solar system. But from this far away, it just looks beautiful. And, you know, we can be lucky in just being able to view it through the right. telescope's camera. One of the next pictures we saw was WASP-96b. So this is about a thousand light years away. This is an exoplanet that they said has water vapor around it. And th these types of things are crucial when we're looking at habitable planets that are beyond earth obviously um this planet probably a far stretch it seems like it's super super hot <laughs> on its surface and wouldn't be so uh, uh hospitable to human life or, or you know or life in general but uh still whenever there's water involved those things are always kind of exciting yeah and i think this image is very important because it gives us a taste of the many experiments and measurements that the telescope can take. It's not just about imaging galaxies and looking at distant stars. It's also about understanding what these space bodies are made of. The telescope measured the visible light coming off of this, again, extremely distant exoplanet beyond the reaches of our solar system. And from just looking at that visible light, it can tell that there's water vapor in the atmosphere and a lot of it. So the image we see is actually a graph showing how much water vapor exists around this exoplanet.
One of the other really stunning images here is a Stephen's Quintet or Stephen's Quintet. This is a huge image of five galaxies, really. It just looks beautiful, but obviously, again, you know, you kind of chaos that happens in space. There's one of these galaxies is tearing a path through this cluster that's there. Yeah, and one of the facts that NASA very lovingly shared about this image, the target was selected because this quintet of galaxies is pretty famously known. Uh, I believe you can maybe sometimes see it through a regular telescope, but it is referenced in the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So I think that's how it landed on NASA's first couple targets for the telescope. Perbita Saha, Deputy Editor at Popular Science, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Keep looking out at the stars. So they turned first to use antibiotics to treat patients when the patients came in with fever and shortness of breath, which turned out to be symptoms of COVID-19, which is a virus. And antibiotics work for bacteria. They do not work for virus. Joining us now is Lena Sun, health reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lena. Happy to be with you. Well, another story about how the pandemic was just a huge disruptor to healthcare systems. We're seeing a new analysis from the CDC, and they're saying that the pandemic fueled a surge in superbug infections and deaths. Overall, we saw a 15% increase, and this is all due to sicker patients, doctors overprescribing antibiotics. There's a lot that goes into that one. And then the lack of staff and safety equipment. We, we all heard those stories that were going around at that time. So, Lena, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing in this. So they took a look at the first year of the pandemic, 2020, and tried to get a sense of what was the data around these antimicrobial infections, also known as superbug infections. And what they found was actually pretty disturbing. You know, in the years before this, these resistant infections in hospitals had fallen by nearly 30% between 2012 and 2017. But in 2020, hospitals, health departments, communities were just at their breaking points, And as a result, you had this happen. So when you have sicker patients flooding the hospitals, they need more frequent, longer use of medical devices like catheters and ventilators. And anytime you use a device that breaks the skin, the body's natural protective barrier, which is your skin, it increases your infection risk. Right. And at the same time, in 2020, the early months of the pandemic, doctors and other clinicians didn't really know very much about COVID-19. And so they turned first to use antibiotics to treat patients when the patients came in with fever and shortness of breath, which turned out to be symptoms of COVID-19, which is a virus. And antibiotics work for bacteria. They do not work for virus. Right. That, your cold is a virus. Yeah. So if you go and get sick and you want your doctor to give you an antibiotic because you know you have a cold or a cough or something that's a virus, it's not going to work. It's just going to make these bugs stronger and be not as useful when we really need them. PPE was another thing. We heard the stories about the lack of personal protective equipment. That was another thing that fuels these superbugs. 
Well, what happens is, you know, you're working in a hospital and if you don't have enough masks, right, you start to hoard the masks or maybe you reuse one or they're, you're not using the right protocol and the masks don't do as good a job and, you know, infection spread. Also, at the time, people were trying to keep all the COVID patients together, right? Don't, keep, don't spread them out all over the hospital. Keep them in one area so you don't spread COVID. But then if you have all the people together, you might not be spreading COVID, but you are maybe spreading these other resistant infections. And at the same time, they were so slammed that people who normally might be doing infection control were pulled off to take care of patients with COVID. So you had this double whammy. You had fewer staff folks to do infection control. At the same time, they are treating more patients at risk for superbug infections. And this has been a problem for a long time. We've been hearing about these superbug infections for a long time and how antibiotics just aren't useful against some of these. You know, it's kind of like the virus where these bacteria do mutate and evolve and they evade uh, the effectiveness of the antibiotics. And increasingly, right, so these were things that were people being affected in hospitals and nursing homes, but increasingly just people going in for common procedures and surgeries now are also susceptible to these things. Right. I mean, you don't have to be an old sick person to get one of these infections, right? You can be a young, healthy person, go to the gym and get a MRSA infection, right? You know, I think in the sports world, people talk about that all the time. Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And MRSA is a bad thing. And you don't want to get these infections. You know, a lot of these superbugs that we're talking about have names that are virtually hard, impossible to pronounce. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, like I will take my stab at one where the hospital infections rose 78% for this particular nasty guy, carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. And this bacteria causes pneumonia and wound and bloodstream and urinary tract infections and is often found in patients in intensive care units. And in 2020, hospital infections for this bad bug jumped 78%. And the reasons these are really, really dangerous threats are not simply that they're resistant to all or nearly all antibiotics. It's also that they're really deadly. They kill up to half of the patients and they can transfer this antibiotic resistance, this bad superpower to other bacteria. So then they make those guys really bad and make the other bacteria untreatable as well. Yeah. That is why they are not good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Lena Sun, health reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be with you. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you filter for remote jobs on job boards, you can see that the location can be anywhere across the country, even if the type of work is listed still as remote. Joining us now is Lindsay Ellis, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's talk about uh, all those people out there that are looking for jobs right now. Obviously, we went through the Great Recession. A lot of people really looking for that work-life balance. One of the key things that a lot of people are working at is that possibility of remote work. And what we've seen is a lot of companies transition to that or, you know, that or hybrid schedules. And, uh, you know, they're putting that on job postings. People are looking for that. They're using filters to specifically look for those. Well, you got to look at the fine print because it might not always be the case. What we're seeing is a lot of companies start transitioning and back to the office a little bit more. And sometimes these job listings might say it's remote work, but it's actually not completely remote work. And that's, uh, you know, wasting a lot of time of people who are, who are specifically looking for something like that. So, Lindsay, tell us a little bit more about this. Sure. So it's a really interesting phenomenon that job applicants are finding when they're looking for their next gig. I mean, many, many people want to work remotely. They want their jobs to have few, if any, ties to the office. And remote job postings are nearly a fifth of, of all paid job listings on LinkedIn in May. And so that you know is every posting that is tagged as remote on the location specifically. But what's happening is that job applicants are finding that even if a listing is posted as remote, if that's how it's categorized in the location and modality, you know, there might actually be more ties to the office than indicated. You might need to work from a certain geography to be able to commute for in-person meetings. Some authors or some listings say that it's remote, but in the fine print would say two to three times per week is our is our preferred schedule. So people are seeing a wider range than you might expect uh, in the definition of, of remote work. Right. And for the person that's looking for a job, they're saying they're kind of using this as clickbait now. They're catfishing with job postings. And for the employers themselves, a lot of times they're throwing it back on the websites that they might be using to post these listings, saying something like, well, you know, the website doesn't offer us enough nuance to put there that, you know, in the, in the, at least in the classification, that's why you have to read the fine print. And, and you're right. You know, a lot of places are saying, you know, you have to live in this geographical area to be able to do some of this hybrid work at least. And I think that's one of those ones that sticks a lot of people because people are looking all over the place with that possibility of remote work. We've heard all those stories of Twitter and whoever saying, we're going to let you work from anywhere in the country. And that's what's throwing people off a lot. 
It's so interesting because when you filter for remote jobs on job boards, you can see that the location can be anywhere across the country, even if the type of work is listed still as remote. So I think, you know, that type of range is exactly what a lot of job seekers are experiencing. You spoke to a number of people who say, okay, I went through the whole process. You know, it takes time to finally settle on a job and say, okay, I want to go through this. We're going to do an interview. And then I find out it's not for me. And they, they take themselves out of the running immediately. Uh, there's, like I said, there's a number of people that you spoke to that really felt strongly enough to say, this is just not for me. And they felt like they wasted their time. And that I think is, you know, at that stage, really the recourse that, that you can have. I mean, you can't get that time back, but several job applicants who I talked to said that when they learned that there would be some in-office requirements, that they immediately just withdrew. One of the telltale signs that you note in the article, and I think it's so important, is if an employer is saying that uh, it, it can be remote or whatever, but they're still working on the return to office plan. That's a telltale sign that it might be remote for now, but not for long. Exactly. And this summer is a time where a lot of companies are saying, okay, it's time to come back to the office a couple times a week to their workers. And so I think that that transitory language, any sort of indication that, you know, we might have a transition ahead, that is sort of a flag for some job seekers that even if it's listed as remote, it might not be forever. You know, during the pandemic, obviously, we were almost, you know, a lot of people were forced to go back to work from home. We figured out we could do it. That that led to this great resignation, right? People wanting that balance. But what are we seeing now? Because we're seeing a lot of shifts. Obviously, we're getting fears of a recession. We're seeing high inflation. We're seeing companies cut back in a lot of ways and not hiring people. And some of the power that employees once had are slowly going away, it seems like. A lot of employers are really wanting to get people back in the office. You know, it's a culture that they miss, that they feel like they might thrive in. And so we're starting to see a lot of these shifts. Not every company, but increasingly a lot more. We're hearing more of these types of stories. You know, it's it's a really interesting thing. I mean, the listings that are tagged as remote, I think some applicants are voting with their feet to show their interest there. Of the jobs that were listed as remote, posted to LinkedIn in May, more than half of applications that the site saw went to those positions, even though those listings were less than a fifth of positions overall. So I think this is something that job applicants are, are continually interested in, even though you know it's not something that is the norm that companies are offering. Lindsay Ellis, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for for chatting about this story. It's great to be here. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.